in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, when the ushers are finished, you can raise your hand and they'll uh, bring you a Bible. They're on double time today. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4. And as we do, when time avails, we go into the proverb of the day, give you a balanced diet of scripture. So if you do have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 10, starting with verse 23. And even those who are waiting for Bibles, I'll repeat the verse a few times. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 23. It says, to do evil is like sport to a fool, but a man of understanding has wisdom. Kind of find that humorous in a macabre sort of way. Uh, the evil, or the fool, does evil like it's sport, like something for fun, something for kicks, something for recreation. But the man of understanding, the man of understanding of what? We've been doing the Proverbs long enough to know that the man who understands his creator, his word, everything that the creator has, has designed, this is the one who delights in wisdom. Again, we've been covering this. Verse 24. The fear of the wicked will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. The wickedness or wickedness carries intrinsic fear, and it's also a consequence of wickedness. I'll give you an extreme. Somebody who's a criminal lives a peace-robbed life. You've heard of the example. They're out on the lam. Law enforcement is looking for them. That's a person whose life carries fear with them. It's peace-robbed. And the righteous petitions are answered, and I would say in prayer. James, I'm going to keep referring back to James because it's awesome, the parallels in this book. Uh, James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He doesn't have that fear, the righteous man. He has that peace that we spoke about. Verse 25, when the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. You can look at this a few ways. The whirlwind is maybe a picture of the coming judgment, and the wicked are no more. They're gone forever. But the righteous have an everlasting foundation. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, was known as the rock. In the New Testament, Jesus also took that. The cornerstone, the rock, they're one. So if you have your anchor and your foundation in Christ, you're going to be around forever. In a temporal sense, if you look at it temporally, even the wicked are unstable in the face of adversity right now. But the righteous has his anchor. In verse 26, some of these are humorous. I just kind of snicker when I read them. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard or lazy person to those who send him. Vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes are what? They're irritants. The sluggard, the lazy, is an irritant to those who try to get him to do something. Some of you may say, Pastor Joe, I think I have a sluggard in my home somewhere. But the last time we talked about, we'll go jump to 1 Corinthians 4, our New Testament study. We saw that Paul made the distinction between the mature and the carnal Christian. And today we're going to see that the Apostle Paul helps the Corinthians understand what true ministry is and really what it means to serve God. Because their ideas were really off. And I think that this chapter, and especially 1 Corinthians 5, are going to challenge what we think about what the Bible says. And I'll tell you right off the bat, 1 Corinthians 5, very few people follow that word of God. It's omitted, and we'll talk about why. Verse 1. 
Let a man so consider us, the Apostle Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. Going back to last chapter, the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 explained what ministers of God are not. The Corinthians were making their favorite preachers celebrity. They were giving them glory. And you know what? We're going to see a lot of parallels to our culture today. I'm going to make some of those parallels. But the Apostle Paul here starts to explain what a true minister of God is. Number one, they're servants of Christ. I found this quote, really neat quote, by Frank Warren. Think about this. It says, if you wish to be a leader, you will be frustrated, for very few people wish to be led. If you aim to be a servant, you will never be frustrated. What does that mean? It means that it's difficult to get people to do things. It's difficult to be a leader. But if you go into the attitude, especially in serving God as a servant, I expect not to hear a thank you. I expect not to be appreciated. I expect nothing in return because I'm a servant, I'm serving God. Then when you're a leader and you do it in the servant leadership style as Jesus did, you won't be frustrated. Pretty good there. Do we wanna be in ministry? Do we have a servant's attitude? I remember years ago when I started in ministry in my old church, uh, I wanted to do something. You know, I I had some time off and um, the person who was discipling me said okay first thing we're going to do is change the toilet seats in the church bathroom you know I was like okay I don't know what this has to do with a servant or leadership but sure I'll do it I didn't say hey man it's not my job it just did what I was asked to do kind of reminds me of the karate kid when Mr. Miyagi had him do all these crazy things and then he finally showed him that it translates into karate but I learned how to be a servant and you and you have to do that and the second thing he says is we're stewards of the mysteries of God. We take our calling seriously in ministry when we realize what we're trafficking in. We're trafficking in the mysteries, the treasures of God. Let me explain what a steward is, just so you understand that time period. In the Roman Empire, it's at a certain point, uh, at the height of its decadency, decadency, half of its population were slaves. One out of every two persons was a slave in that society. And basically, is going to get into this again, what the Romans would do is they would conquer other territories and with the spoil and the loot that they got when they were victorious, they would also take these poor people from their villages and chain them up and make them slaves or feed them to the lions in the Colosseums. It's a pretty sick society. But a steward, even Jesus referenced stewards and everybody understand what he was talking about in the parables. You had your master had his slaves or his servants and there would be maybe one servant out of all of them that really was diligent. He didn't have to push too hard. The the servant was proactive, and he was faithful and dependable, and the master would take that servant and make him a steward. He still was a servant. He still was accountable to the master. He still had to do what he was told, but he would give him uh, a, a status where he could handle his master's money and even his accounts and doing business with other uh, clients because he was found faithful. So when we're stewards, we're still slaves. We're still servants to the ever-living God. 
but he's found us faithful enough that we can do his business, right? Faithful in the little, faithful in the many. So understand that word. But a steward must be found to be faithful. That's the word. That means if there's unfaithfulness and there's a habit of uh, unfaithfulness, forget it. You're not going to be moved on to bigger and better things. And this is a really good model for ministry. In 10 years of collective ministry, I've seen many rising stars, many boasts, many promises, many broken promises. And I have to tell you, in the beginning, that was me, all the above, right? But I had to prove myself faithful in the little before the Lord would give me faithful in other things. Paul challenges the Corinthians to look at preachers, not as celebrities, but what they really are, responsible to God. There's a perspective check right here. The next few verses, the Apostle Paul's ministry is called into question with some Corinthians. We've spoke about several letters that actually went back and forth between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. The Holy Spirit has decided to preserve 1st and 2nd Corinthians for us to learn from. Future history is usually kinder to us than the present. And that just means that in the present, you get a lot of grief, but as you see this with presidents, future history, they look back and they'll find some good attribute to speak about that president. And I think it's the same with the Apostle Paul. 2,000 years later, we have an intellectual and emotional love affair with Paul because of his writings. But at the time, most of the people gave him a hard time. You know what I'm saying? It was a thankless job in a sense. But Paul responds to this judgment or scrutiny of himself using three types of judgment. The first one, human judgment that he speaks about. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. He says, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. Really meditate upon that. Paul was given a hard time by these people. Now, if we could all say that and mean it today... It's a small thing to be judged by you or you or you. I don't seek your approval. I shouldn't seek your approval. I should seek the approval from God alone. And if I'm doing right by God, it doesn't matter what man's approval is because man's approval vacillates. You see it with sports stars and celebrities. You love them one day, you hate them the next, politicians. So if a politician was driven by public opinion polls, he's going to be all over the map. He's just got to do or she's got to do what's right. The question that I have for you today is, do you determine your value from others? Those of your peers, those of your cliques, those of your friends? Do you do things that are expected of you and do them only because it's expected of you? Are you trying to break into some type of clique because you're looking for the approval from others? Christians can, and I've seen this, they play this game. It's like a phony Christian social type of game to avoid others' judgments. And they'll even stay friends with the church gossip or somebody who has a strong personality. And the reason being is because they're afraid if they cut off those ties, then they may shoot the barrel at them. Let's not, we got to stop playing the game. You see, when you're in a clique, you rely way too much about what others think of you, approval or disapproval, and it becomes like high school again. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, the Apostle Paul says, our purpose is to please God and not people. Many in ministry today need to understand this and live by it, okay? Human judgment is always subjected and flawed. Therefore, if you're doing the right thing, now listen, if you're in sin and a brother or sister comes to you and says, hey, this is what the scripture says, you're not doing that. That's a different story. Take the rebuke. But if you're following what the Lord says and you're following his word, who cares what other people think of you? Don't play the game. 
The second type of judgment is self-judgment. This is an interesting one. Same thing. People are fickle. Our minds are fickle. Did you ever play the I love myself one day game and the next day I hate myself? Well, apparently a lot of you have. Paul says, I don't even judge myself, good or bad. Humans are sinful, so they're biased and they're flawed and their self-judgment, good or bad, is still useless. Self-judgment is also subjective and vacillates like the wind. The third, lastly spoken of, but most important judgment is the Lord's judgment. Don't judge anything before the time. And I could look at that even with my vegetable garden. I'm so, I'm so psyched to eat the corn that's coming up, and they're only this big. And I'm like, mm, 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 this is really good. I ate it right off the thing. But it's got to get bigger, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to blow through those things and listen. Maybe not a good example, but don't judge anything. <laughs> Wait, be patient. The Lord is the one that we're all going to stand before him. Now, the ones who've rejected Christ, the ones who are in rebellion are going to stand before the great white throne judgment. That's not for us. That's bad news. You know, it's everlasting punishment for them. But for those of us who are in Christ, we're still going to stand before the Lord. The Bible's clear upon that. We're going to go into that. And our works are going to be judged. We covered that in 1 Corinthians, didn't we? And our motives are going to be judged. And maybe the world or the Christian community looks at one person and, and, and castigates them or makes them an, an outcast. But the Lord says, no, no, no. They were doing my will. You guys be quiet. Look at Job. He had three friends. It was great when they were, kept their mouths shut and soured him and comforted him. But when they started opening their mouths, they chastised him. And the Lord rebuked them. Hey, man, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It, it has nothing to do with sin on Job's part. So judge nothing before the time. We can't condemn anyone. Now, we're going to see later, and you might say, gee, there's a contradiction in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, I judge myself so that the Lord doesn't have to deal with me. It's a different type of judgment. It's a reflection. It's an introspection. It's, and it, those are good things, but it's not condemning. I always say the Lord reveals the truth. Could be 10 20, 30 years, a certain situation, he always reveals the truth. It'll all be brought out into the light. And even if it's not done now, it will be done later. So the question is, what should we do until then, knowing this? Follow God's word. Be in prayer. Is it, is it a, a hard thing for us to pray every day? You know, is there not breaks in the day that we can just look up and look at something that God's created and just praise him? or thank him for something. There's so many ways that we can speak to him during the day. It doesn't have to be, you know, three-hour clips. I don't pray for three hours at a clip. I've run out of things to say after a while. But the point is, cultivate, cultivate that relationship with the Lord. Seek him. Seek his will. Read his word. Listen to that still, small voice. And if we're doing that, who cares what the spectators or the peanut gallery is going to say about you? Now, I look at missionaries, and in our society, you know, we're a very success-driven, oriented society. Those who aren't spiritual may look at these folks who go over to other uh, lands and maybe do it long-term and don't have a 401k or don't have a retirement plan and say, that's so stupid. What are you going to do? How, what if you have a family? Hey, man, they're doing God's will. Who cares what the peanut gallery says or the spectators? Because spectators will always be around. Verse 6 now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? 
Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish, I could, I wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. Now, my Bible has the heading, Misunderstanding of Paul's Ministry. You could say, well, Paul was defending himself, he was explaining himself, and some may, may disagree, but I got to tell you, um, you know, you can't put out every fire. You know, people were saying things about the Apostle Paul, and I think he just basically had his head to the, hands to the plow and just did God's will. But there are some times where you have to correct the record, where you have to set the record straight. And let me give an example. In Paul's case, there was a faction that didn't like Paul, obviously, and you can see that as we go further in the letter. They didn't like Paul. Some of them despised him, okay? But if his reputation was allowed to be completely eradicated, what would that do for the lesser believers? What would that do for those who were coming to church and listening and hadn't given their lives to Christ yet? What would that do to the weak believers, right? It would destroy them. So the Apostle Paul had to really, in a sense, set the record straight on this. Verse 6, the Corinthians went beyond what was written. In what? In their assessment of their ministers and their attitudes in general, written. Paul says, basically, you can never go wrong when you stick with the Word of God. And if you have a vision or you have a dream and it's contradictory to what God says, but you think God's leading you there, forget about it. You know, chalk it up to nothing. Because God will never give you a vision or an idea or something that goes against His Word. We get into dangerous ground when we get into the Bible plus anything else. And you see that in traditions. You see that in religious traditions. Could be hundreds of years, thousands of years, any so-called Christian institution that starts to elevate their traditions and their bylaws and their church rules to where it kind of outcrowds God's word, don't go beyond what's written. That's wrong. They all get into trouble when they start doing that. And you question them. Yeah, but here's what God's word says. But your church teaches this. Big problem. Now they have to explain it. Don't go beyond what's written. And in our own lives, we need to not go beyond what's written. And that's important because today, there's a lot of seeking going on. There's a lot of new movements in the church. You know, there's a lot of new excitement and, and, and things that are going on. Look, look at this place. Look, churches are opening up left and right, and they all have these different ideas. Are they in the Word? If they're not grounded in God's Word, you don't stay there. Verse 7. He speaks about a uniqueness that distinguishes Paul from Apollos, from, you know, other folks. There's diversity in ministry. We're supposed to enjoy that diversity. I was talking to somebody even before service. As a senior pastor, I have to study a lot. Plus, I have another profession that helps to pay the bills and all that kind of stuff. So there's only so much that I can do. But someone who's single, I was talking to someone the other day, single and, and they love the Lord and they don't have a family, they could do a lot more than I could. A missionary, a, an evangelist, I, I look at that and go, wow, that is so cool. And some look at what I'm doing and say, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's, it's, it's all cool. But we work together, you see? And that's why God didn't give one person all the gifts. Because the focus would be on that person and not God. And we're going to see as we get through chapters 12, 13, and 14 that we all work together collectively as the body of Christ. So we have uniqueness. We enjoy it. But don't be arrogant about it. Don't pit pastors against each other or teachers against each other unless they're false teachers. That's a different story. Understand that any blessing is designed to help us to grow in the Lord. Not because we're great, but because God is great. James 1, back to James again, he says, every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Verse 8, 
okay, we get into a little, um, little satire, a little sarcasm here. He says, you're rich. You reigned as kings. I wish that was so, you know, because we'd like to get on the gravy train. Corinthians were prideful. They act like they arrived. We use that term in ministry. Someone who acts like they arrived, like they're so spiritual and they can't learn anything else. They hit a plateau, the, the perfection plateau, and there's nowhere else to go from there, right? And they're waiting for the rest of us to get up there. So this is the way the Corinthians were behaving. And the attitude sort of, and again, if I could put words in Paul's mouth was, hey, you guys did it in two years. I've been doing this for about 15 years and I'm still not perfect yet. What's your secret? And of course, he's being facetious, right? Following God can be painful. But the Corinthians have found a way that, you know, no other church has figured out or no other group of God's people to have this perfection in a year or two. It's not true. Okay, there's no easy way. It's like you get what you pay for. You know, and I, I can be cheap sometimes. And then I'm like, ah, the stupid thing's broken. I got what I paid for. It's a piece of junk, you know? To really follow God, to really cultivate a ministry, to really grow something takes time. And everyone's looking for a shortcut, right? Oh, there's so many church, how to grow your church in 15 minutes. You know, you may be able to do that if you, if you say we're giving away free shavers and toasters or something. But the bottom line is, what are you going to have? What's your congregation going to look like? All right? So there's no easy way to do true ministry. And Jesus said to count the costs because it's going to cost us something when we follow God. Let me give you an example. Some of you, we've had a few people come up and come to the Lord in the last few months, and they're following the Lord, and they're excited, and they have questions, and they, they want to know, you know, they're just starting this journey. And maybe they go home, and their family doesn't receive it. Maybe their coworkers, you know, I, I just found Jesus. I want to tell you about the love of Christ. Hey, man, back off. That's weird. And what happens is that sometimes a little bit of a discouragement sets in. But when you follow God, even the, I'll tell you what, if you go to uh, Pakistan or any of these areas and they become saved, well, you, where do you find some of this stuff out? Their family's ostracized and they kick them out of the house. If, I mean, it's really bad. They leave them destitute. So following God does have a cost associated to it. Verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're dishonored. Even to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor. Working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure it. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. This is going to get a little pungent. If you're not used to the Bible or you maybe been a Christian for a while and you haven't read this in a while, wait till the next chapter comes up. You, you're going to get some pungent. I, I just encourage you all to be there for that. It's really neat. It's very powerful. But this is the moniker of true ministry and leadership. And it's not often what we see in America, and we'll get to that. Remember, we fell in love with the Apostle Paul, but at the time... He was doing God's will. He got a lot of opposition, and unfortunately, a lot of it came from within the church. Verse 9, he said, we have been made a spectacle. In the Greek, that word is theatron. Guess what we get from that? Theater, theatrics, okay? Let me explain to you what the spectacle was that he was speaking about. 
again, when we talked about when the Romans conquered. They go to an outpost, they conquer another group of people, you know, they, they're victorious. Uh, what they do is they'll go through Rome or, you know, some big city, and it's almost like what we used to have, the ticker tape parades. World War II, the, the, the soldiers came back and ticker tape was all over. You can see pictures of it on the internet, it's kind of neat. It's a victorious celebration. And we, I don't think we came up with it. We probably got it from other cultures. But the Romans, their generals would come out in all their pomp and splendor. And then their soldiers would come out and their, their weapons of war and their shields and their horses and their chariots. And they'd roll through the city and everybody would cheer the Romans victorious. Pax Romana, right? At the end of the line were the poor saps with tattered clothes walking, chained together like, like cattle. And that was part of the, 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 the spoils of war. And what they would do, again, is some they would sell on the slave blocks. They would sell, a man was, was big and, and, and buff. He could do a lot of work for you. People would buy him, they'd buy his family, they'd separate him up, it's pretty bad. But oftentimes they would take these slaves and bring them to the Colosseum, you know, and they'd let the lions out and everybody would cheer and they'd take these poor guys and they'd throw them out there with a shield and a helmet and a sword and they'd just get eaten by the lions. What's Paul saying here? He's saying is we're, we're spiritual theater here, you know, to the world and to the angels and demons. The whole world is looking at this spectacle that's being made. There's a huge spiritual warfare component to this. You know, ministry is not glamorous. I think he was really uh, getting these Corinthians, maybe a little hyperbole, maybe a little strong language, but he's trying to get them to understand this. Now, ministry of, involves a few things. Number one, it involves appreciation. We need to be appreciative, if those of us who are in ministry, to what God has assigned us to do. Are you watching the kids? Are you ushering? Are you doing worship? Are you pastoring? Are you an evangelist? Do you go out and help the homeless? Do we do it grudgingly, or do we have such a, an appreciation that God has given us the most precious thing that he has, the gift of everlasting life and salvation to give to a lost and dying world? Wow, I appreciate that. Second thing, ministry involves. It involves a sacrifice. If we have idols and we have things in our life that we put up so high, God doesn't want to play second place and he won't. Ministry involves sacrifice. And if you are in ministry, you'll see, you will sacrifice. Ministry also at times involves suffering, right? The Lord suffered. He was the, 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 uh, the standard for suffering. You know, Jesus said, if they persecute me, guess what? You follow me, you got my message. They didn't like it when it came from me and I'm the son of God. You go out there with that message, you're gonna get persecuted, trust me. And if it isn't from men specifically, it's from demons working behind the scenes and, and, and empowering those to come against you. All those in true ministry will lose, will lose friends. You'll lose friends, you'll lose acquaintances, some people in your family get mad at you. You will lose financial opportunities, okay? Uh, Paul Klauke, one of our missionaries uh, to Africa, he left a lucrative job. God called him to Africa. He left a lucrative job in the United States, and him and his wife been serving there for years. It's awesome. They were up here uh, about a month or so ago. You will lose some precious years of your life to laboring, to ministry, to being called at inconvenient times to bless somebody in need. You will, I'm telling you that right now. But it cannot compare to the blessings and the, and the, uh, the praise and the, um, just to know that you've just pleased your Father in heaven. 
There's no comparison. The Bible tells us that. Whatever I could tell you that you could envision, it's going to be a zillion times better than that. In Corinth and today, if you think you're going into ministry, if you think you're going to serve God and you will maintain your popularity, forget about it. If you're doing true ministry, you will rub people the wrong way because you now have a different standard and those in your group may even want you to do a certain thing, but God has called you to higher things. You will lose popularity. You'll lose your comfort zones, you know? <laughs> it's when you get that phone call that something went wrong, it's not always at the time where, you know, you just have free time. You will lose your comfort zones. You'll be pulled out of those comfort zones. Wealth, you may be able to keep it, but probably not. Being used of God will cost you something. Jesus said to count the costs before following him. Think about the Apostle Paul. Well, what do we know of Paul? From Tarsus, great university in Tarsus. Studied under Gamaliel. Even the secularists know who Gamaliel is, okay? You can Google his name. Uh, great orator, brilliant man, a mind like a steel trap. He could have done the circuit. He was a Pharisee. He could have gone out there and went from city to city with his credentials and his resume, and he could have made big bucks. They would have treated him well, taken care of him, but he left all that. He says, I consider those things as rubbish, right? Because I'm serving the living God. Jim Elliot, famous martyred mission, missionary, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, earthly life. We can't keep our earthly life. Try it. It doesn't work. We're not guaranteed another day of life and breath in our lungs to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. And guess what? That was prophetic because Jim Elliott, as a young man, lost his life to those he was ministering to, the Aka Indians, I believe it was. He lived that life. Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Up until 28 years old, I was trying to find my life and I lost it. You know, it didn't make me happy. No matter what I did, no matter what achievement I did, it didn't make me happy. It wasn't until I found Christ and gave my life to him that I really gained my life back. And those who are natural man, natural woman, they know me from my past saying, what is it, man? I don't get it. That's right. They don't get it because they don't have the spiritual component to it. This letter was written to Corinth, but it's also written to American Christians. The Corinthians were driven to success, and that culture invaded the church. And as we go through the books, we're going to see the parallels as does our culture. If you're new to the Bible, this stuff may be a little radical. Someone from the mission field today, dressed poorly, doesn't have the look, maybe he's missing a few teeth, maybe has uh, scars from being in missions, not cool, not eloquent, but leading thousands to Christ, they're not getting on the Larry King show, forget about it. You know who's going to get on? The one who has the Armani suits and the Rolex watch and drives the nice car, and he's looking perfect, his hair looks great, he's going to get on Larry King because he's going to tell everyone, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to be popular. God wants you to be happy all the time. And if you stay long enough and you write big enough checks to me, you're going to get a rate of return. It's like an investment fund. And after 10, 15, 20 years, people get disillusioned because they were being taught the wrong thing. Because the spirit of Corinth is alive and well in the United States. Verse 12. He says, we work with our hands, and we're reviled. Paul made tents to support himself while he was on the missions field. 
physical labor in those days, understand the culture. You know, it's kind of cool if you've got a few minutes, just look at Greek culture. Log on to a search engine, look in your encyclopedia, and just see, punch in Corinth. You know, it's really neat. When you get a background of this city, it really helps you understand what the letter is saying. It's just a good aid. But physical labor to those types of people in Corinth was looked down as beneath them. An intellectual did not do that. Actually, go buy a slave. That's what they're good for. They, they dig holes and they, they go in the dirt and they move things around. You know, you don't if you're a citizen. Rome, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. He might have been, Paul, an embarrassment to some in the Corinthian church. Well, what does your pastor do? <clears throat> Makes tense. You know what I'm saying? It's embarrassing because to that society, that wasn't looked very favorably upon. And today you see the same thing. It's no different in America, you know? It's what some pastors have told me. Joe, when you get your building, all, right, all guys I know that started out in a school and went to a, a building, he goes, your, your, your um, body will grow by 25, 30% in the first few months. People will come out of the woodwork. I'm like, why? He said, because you're looked at now as legitimate. You know, you're on a street and you've got a sign and there's a dove up there and you've got a building. That's pathetic. Because up until the first few centuries, Christians didn't meet in a building. They met in sewers. They met in caves, catacombs where dead people were. This is where the Christians met. And when they were persecuted, it was even worse. Spirit of Corinth is alive and well in the United States. But Paul was persecuted, he was looked down upon, but he blessed those who persecuted him because he followed Jesus, his master. His ministry was hard, but Paul, you never see him getting bitter and disillusioned. Listen, I think you can see frustration, I think you could see sadness, I think you could see hurt in his letters, but he wasn't going to let that stop him from doing the Lord's will. And verse 13 he says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The filth of the world. The Greek word literally means to wipe around. And that word was used when the vessels would come in and the scum would build up on the vessels and the nasty stuff that would build up on it. And of course, it was the slave's job to take a rag or whatever and clean that scum off the vessel. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, let's... Go 2,000 years later, our vernacular. Paul was saying, we are the scum of the earth. A little hyperbole there, a little shocking, but you get the point. This was to deflate the Corinthians' inflated ego of themselves and the attitude that they had towards their favorite preachers that started factions. Paul's saying, if you associate with us in true ministry, you better get ready for the consequences. I've heard, I like the older Bible teachers because I don't know what it was, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Man, these guys were just crusty. They just didn't care. They just told it like it is. Today, we sanitize everything and we, we dance around the issue when we're asked a question. But man, they just gave it to you straight. And they said that the celebrity preacher who preaches a message that tickles the ears is a phony. He's a false teacher. Because, well, you can go to Columbia, get... Voice of the Martyrs is a great periodical. If you don't have it, I suggest you get it. Uh, it's free, and it's really an eye-opener. It gives you some pretty graphic pictures of what Christians go through trying to give God's word overseas. You go to Colombia, right? Not too far down south. And uh, the, the government is fighting with the FARC guerrillas. Uh, they're a very brutal group. And the Colombian pastors are saying to the young people, don't get involved, don't let them recruit you. And the, the gorillas are not happy with that. They beat the pastors up. They kidnap their children. They, uh, they, there's a lot of pastors who got killed in Colombia. The government can't protect them. 
Why? Because they're trying to save these kids from going down the wrong path. North Africa, your church may be aerated. You know, kids over in North Africa, different countries there, are missing arms and legs because it's very violent there. The uh, Muslim-dominated states have uh, uh, no tolerance for these churches. Guelo Gustavo, you know, ministers to the Muslims in Europe. I know you don't want to hear this, Mom, but where do you get your first beating? And you're laying there saying, you know, where's Mom and Dad? I'm far from home, and it's hurting. You think, gee, did I really hear from the Lord? Because we tend to do that. I'm telling you, ahead of time, you did hear from the Lord. K.P. Ohanan tells a story about Bundi in northwest India. They beat him pretty good. And he said, I'm not going back. And the Lord said, you're going back. He's like, no, Lord, I don't want to go back. Well, he goes back, and you know what? Some of those, they were so amazed, and they listened to him, and he converted some Muslims to Christ. So this is what happens when you really try to break into that spiritual realm. Jesus looked at the Pharisees of his day. The Pharisees, oh, they had the long robes, and wherever they would, would go, you know, they had the, the garb and everything, and uh, the master of the feast would say, oh, Pharisee, come, you sit here in the front. They had the popularity. They had the look. They had the money. They had the success, the prestige, and Jesus chastised them. Then comes Christianity. Oh, everyone's going to get it, so don't feel bad about what I'm going to say here. Then the Roman Catholic Church rises to power. Well, what do the popes do? They do the cardinals. They do everything that the Pharisees did. They wear the fancy garb. The Vatican is wealthy. They've got gold. They've got jewels. They've got um, you know, their own armed forces. And in the Dark Ages, they controlled Europe. All right? They didn't get it either. Well, the evangelicals also figured out how to tap into what I call the gospel gravy train. Hey, man, everyone else is getting rich off this stuff. Oh, yeah, the evangelicals of today, these guys are worth millions. They're multimillionaires. As a matter of fact, our 501c3, as uh, people of faith, our uh, nonprofit establishment certification from the federal government is at stake because the government is looking at these guys and saying, you know, years ago, and they're right, they're secular people. Years ago, the pastor was humble. He maybe had 40 people in the church. He knew everybody, went to the house for dinner, and he lived a humble life. These guys are multimillionaires. Some of the big names, Benny Hinn, they did a, an expose on him. He's a, he's a millionaire. He's got mansions, private jets, $2,000 a night, hotel room stays. So when the government comes after us, don't blame the government. We're our own worst enemies, right? What do you think these people are doing? They look at us as hypocrites. And I think the bottom line is to understand. And the problem is the ones who follow them, they're feeding the disease, you see? They're feeding the disease. We need to not look at these folks. I don't care who they are. They come in from California, guest speaker. You look at them like everybody else. We're all equal in God's eyes, right? We're, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul's motives were explained, and he, I think he had to. We, we, we covered that. But his motives were he loved them as a spiritual father, right? He was trying to save them from destroying their spiritual life. He could have just looked the other way and not had any grief, but he loved them too much for that. You know, I, I talk about the Solis family. Luis is like a spiritual father to me, right? And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. I've had others that mentored me, and... Uh, and I appreciate that too. There's a special place in my heart for them. But 
He says, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. It's good to have variety, as long as the teachers are teaching the proper thing. I enjoy Warren Wiersbe. He's not a Calvary guy. But it's not about partisanship. I don't just listen to Calvary guys. I like to get a well-balanced diet. This isn't a club. You know, we're not running a Calvary club here. It's about God. It's about Jesus. And we should never lose sight of that. Verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, imitate me. The word in the Greek is mimetes. Guess what we get in the English? Mimic, etymology of that word. There's a lot here on Paul's example. Paul was able to shape their lives, and Paul was trying to get their heads refocused and uh, trying to get them to understand that he loved them and he was doing this for their own good. Verse 17. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up, or arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and a spirit of gentleness? Timothy, trusted, loyal, faithful, younger, discipled person in Paul's life. You know, every minister needs a Timothy. And every Timothy needs a Paul, right? And every Paul needs a Barnabas, somebody who's equal to him. And those like those three relationships, the ones that you're pouring into, the ones that are pouring into you, and those of you who are on the same level that can help pick each other up and, you know, um, be countable to. First, uh, let me just switch over. I like this time. He says, shall I come to you with a rod, all right? Or shall I come to you in love and a spirit of gentleness? Because he was willing to give both. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this, this next passage may shock you. But John 2, starting with verse 13, in the Gospel of John 2, starting with verse 13. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And he made, when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Was Jesus in sin? course not. Jesus never sinned. He had righteous anger. Jesus didn't drive them out and turn over their tables because it was something that he could gain. That was supposed to be God's house, and they were corrupt. They were exchanging money. They were ripping the people off. They were um, looking at their animals that they were going to sacrifice and making up some excuse so the person could buy their animals at usury. So there was a lot of bad things going on, and Jesus made a whip of cords and started driving everybody out. I don't think he pummeled anybody. I'm not going to go that far. But he definitely drove him out. And this is kind of neat. And Paul says, should I come to you with a rod or in love? And again, this could be shocking. Next chapter is really going to be shocking because in our society, you don't offend people in the Northeast. Hey, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me? Who do you know who I am? I mean, that's just the way it is around here. You you can't, everybody's got this wall up, uh, unapproachable, can't correct me, you know? Don't step in my uh, cone of silence over here. But, you know, you try to correct people today, they'll just get offended and find another church in a five-mile radius. Well, back then, you couldn't just leave the church. 
all right? Because there weren't one right across the street or whatever. You had to stay and make it work, right? The Corinthians were left with a choice from the Apostle Paul, and it emanates from the mind of Christ. And we're also left with that same choice. Will we be introspective? Will we look at our own hearts and continue to be in Christ and in the Holy Spirit? Or do we have to get the rod of correction? Again, very appropriate sermon today for the Solises because I've gotten the rod many times from Luis. And eventually I learned my lesson. But my wife will tell you, sometimes I could still be a jerk. But not as bad, little jerk. But what we really see is a segue into chapter 5, which we'll see in two weeks because we have a guest speaker next week. Paul says that we need to examine ourselves before the Lord needs to deal with us. Because the Lord, if he, he does love us, and Hebrews tells us that if he loves us, he chastens us like a father chastens his children. So it's better for us, God leaves us plenty of slack that we can get it right before he has to deal with us. The Bible also provides a way out when we sin, an opportunity to repent and get right with him. Do we take full advantage of that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings.